Morning, church. We have two passages today for scripture reading. Big Bible. Um, the passages today are going to be in 1 John and Philippians. We'll start in 1 John. There are Bibles in the pews in front of you. If you'd like to use those, you can turn there and find the 1 John passage on page 1860. We'll be focusing on verses 9 through 21. While you're turning there, we will also have AMA or Ask Me Anything at the end of this service. So later on, I believe the number that you can text in questions will show up on the slide so you can think through that um, as the sermon continues. First John 4, starting at verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and his only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So now you can turn to Philippians. This will be chapter 1, and we will read verses 25 through 30. You can find this on page 1784 in those pew Bibles. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Amen. <clears throat> Thanks, Becca. Hey, everybody. Good morning. 
okay, I really want to do AMA. And so um, I'm going to dive right in. There will be no jokes um, for a while. Sorry, that might be funny by accident. Um, and my face will be up here the whole time. So there's that. But um, let's jump. We're going to jump right in. Uh, for the next uh, eight weeks, we're going to preach, pre- be preaching through Philippians 4. And we're going to specifically focus on the life of the local church and what it means to be a Christian in the local church. And so we'll be talking also about what it means to be High Point Church as this individual church, because we haven't really talked about that for like five years, because I hate those kinds of sermons. But they're actually incredibly important for us to actually be in concord with each other. So there's going to be a good bit of that, okay? So here's what we need to start with. It is a theological fact of our spiritual reality that every Christian in every generation, and you might even argue in every life stage, has to answer this question for themselves. Are you going to build the church or abandon her? It's not an it. It's a her. And you have to decide in every stage of your life, if you claim to be a believer in Jesus, are you going to build her or are you going to abandon her? Now, you might say, well, Nick, shouldn't we abandon the church? Aren't there lots of really good reasons to abandon the church? And the answer is yes, like any wife. That's supposed to be be funny and true, right? Like, anybody who's been with anybody, it's it's also true for every husband, okay? Like, give me a break. Okay, so, right, every person has all kinds of faults. Like, the minute Jesus included humans in the local church, especially post-fall, the only reason we need a church is because we're sinners. There's not, like, some magic energy field at at the front doors that when you walk in, you become wholly sanctified, Right? Human beings are malevolent and foolish and dumb and selfish, and here we are, right? The church is by definition full of hypocrites in the lesser sense of the term. That is, people who don't live up to what they say they believe. That's, of course, not the real definition of hypocrite, but it's the one most people use when they attack the church, right? And it is true that if you look at the church that way— Is everybody in the local church like Jesus, and do they treat me like I think Jesus would treat me, right? In my deluded sense of myself of what I deserve, which is completely wrong, probably. And the answer is always going to be no. It's always going to be no, right? And some people, their argument for that is like really bad. I mean, the the petty, immature stories I've heard from people who are like, I'm through with the church because like somebody like said something not nice to them when they were 15 and they were in a difficult time of their life. And so they reject the entire international church for all time. Like, like it's crazy the pretenses demonic influence can use in the human heart when self-righteous about rejecting the church forever. But I have also sat with dozens and dozens of people who've been profoundly emotionally, spiritually, and personally harmed in local churches. Like I've said many times before from this pulpit, religious faith or spiritual faith will either make you a much better kind of human being or a much worse kind of human being. And for many people who believe in religious faith in a a really unbiblical, non-Jesus-oriented sort of way, it makes them much worse and more self-righteous about that worseness, and they hurt people a lot more. They spiritualize their trauma, and they attack other people with it, and they're like, this is spirituality, and it's awful. And like when you experience that, you want to just abandon the church. And the thing is, there are a lot of reasons for that, okay? Here's the other thing. There's also a lot of reasons not to. I mean, I'm a pastor. I get criticized in the church. I've had a lot of bad church experiences. One of the reasons I became a pastor is because the preaching I listened to as a young man was so terrible. 
And I was like, the church should not be this bad. It shouldn't be this boring. It shouldn't be this emotionally dysfunctional. So why don't I, as an incredibly dysfunctional bad speaker, become a pastor? <laughs> right? But I've also experienced, like, some of the greatest, like, communities in the local church. One of the things that brought me to Christ was being in a Christian camp where people really loved each other and didn't have— there were, there were some, like, cliquish sort of groupy sort of things, but everybody let everybody else in and everybody loved each other. And like I learned in some ways what love was socially, not at my high school or my middle school, which was like a pack of wolves devouring each other emotionally and sexually. I learned at a Christian camp where people were at least trying to be like Jesus and showed me what love looked like among peers. But that's not the reason not to abandon the church. The reason not to abandon the church is the same reason not to abandon your wife. Not because of how she behaves or what you happen to think right now or what you think your experience is with her. It's what she is when she became your wife and is a human woman. Right? And so one of the things you have to grapple with is if you say you believe in Jesus, if you say you love what he loves, if you say the things that are important to him are important to you, which is part of what it means to be his disciple, I get so sick of people. Okay, I'm sorry. This is a rant now. Many of you know I do not like the phrase Christ follower. Not because everybody who uses it is wrong and an idiot or something like that. I just think functionally it ends up culturally being an act of cowardice because you don't want to stand with all those people who say they're Christians who aren't good enough at being a church. And my frustration with it is that those people are all my brothers and sisters too, even the annoying ones, the dumb ones, the uneducated ones, the ones who voted for Trump, etc. Or Biden. And my frustration with that is, is like they are my brothers and sisters. They are what they are. If they belong to Jesus, they are part of the church. I am a Christian with them. And if you, the media, or the culture, or the people, or you in this church that think you're sophisticated, don't like them, so much the worse for you because they're part of the bride of Jesus Christ. Okay, the strange people, the poor people, the annoying people, the extra grace required people, the high maintenance people who believe in and love Jesus, who bear the image of God and are being redeemed in his spirit are his. They are his church. And if somebody's going to get kicked out of here, it's you that doesn't accept them, not those people, so long as they are seeking to love and follow Jesus. This is the church. Jesus defines it. We don't make up our religion. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. And fundamental to that faith is his institution of the body of Christ, which is only accessible in the physical local church. And he refers to that thing as his physical body, of which he is the head, and we are the body. And pastors and elders are like the, like the ligaments and sinews that hold the muscle and bone and organs all together. And in it, there's this vital life when it's united and connected with each other. And that is the most important, most vital metaphor used the most in the New Testament. Right? Secondly, he, we're called the bride of Christ. Whenever you say something about the church, just stop before it comes out of your face and say, is this the way I should speak about somebody's wife on their wedding day? Now listen, the Bible is very clear that the people of God have always also been a whore. I'm sorry, I can't say prostitute, even if you like that word better, because it's not a bad enough word for the word the Bible actually uses. Okay? That is also true of the people of God. And sometimes you feel like the church is like that, and you're like, the church is like, just stop your mouth for a second— and recognize that whatever you're about to say, you are saying about a group that Jesus has designated as his own bride, that he's preparing for a wedding, that he is excited to marry, that is his forever, which is the 
inheritance and bride and family, he has spent everything to prepare for himself, to receive for himself. He is like a groom who cannot wait to marry his wife and is just like counting down the minutes until that can happen. And now you're going to talk about that woman. Now be careful what you say. Because that's how Jesus thinks about the church. Right? In First Peter, the apostle says we're like a living temple. Like all these stones, like cut off of one cornerstone, built up, and every stone is alive. It's like this, this great temple built up alive that is holy together and contains the presence of God himself, open to the world. Right? Cologne Cathedral that's in that picture was built for a thousand years. And this one is still being built after 2,000, right? One of the most fundamental ones in the epistles is a family. One of the most horrifying realities of knowing that Jesus has become your Lord and Savior, your older brother in salvation's work, is that everybody who believes in him has now become your brother and sister, right? It's terrifying. The greatest, one of the greatest beauties of Christian faith is also the most fundamental normal terrors, right? One of the greatest beauties is you're adopted into the family of God. You are fully adopted. You are no longer can be controlled by the old parents of sin or Adam and Eve's sin in you, but like you are brought in as a full participant in the family of God. And because of that, by implication, every other believer is your brother and sister everlastingly. You might as well stick with them because you're going to be with them. You know? And then lastly, in this passage of Philippians, though there's a word that Paul uses twice in Philippians and nowhere else. He's in He's connected to Caesar's household, remember, because he sends greetings from Caesar's household. And he's probably around the Praetorian guards, which are like extremely elite infantrymen, right? Soldiers. And he says, what I want to hear about you guys is I want to hear that you are like one person, like one man, it says, contending for the faith. And you'll be like, well, that's so sexist. One man? How dare he, right? Well, first of all, that's how they wrote then. But also, he's, he's referring to soldiers, probably. Because he says, I want you to stand firm— the only other place—one of the other places he uses that language is, is Ephesians 6, which is about battle and being armored. Here he's using an infantry metaphor again, but the main focus of the metaphor is not the armor that infantry would wear, the full panoply of armor, which is Ephesians 6. Here it's the unity that infantrymen fought with. That one of the ways that, that legions, both the hoplites and the Greeks, and later the Romans, talked about infantry warfare is that the squad moved like it was one person. The only way to really be superior to your enemy is to never give up, i.e. stand firm with one spirit, and to fight like you were literally one man, always moving together, always totally in sync with each other, and always filled with courage, not afraid of those who oppose you. You see the description? Stand firm in one spirit, contending like you're one man, and clearly not afraid of those who oppose you. Why? Because what happens in battle when you're charging a group of infantry and they, all of their shields are in perfect alignment. They are not moving backwards at all. They're leaning forward. And you can see on their faces there is no fear in their eyes. It's a sign to you as their opposition that you're about to be destroyed. You see, what the Apostle Paul says is one of the services that the Church of Jesus Christ is to give both to their spiritual fathers and mothers— and the sign that's supposed to be a helpful sign of the coming destruction of Christ's opposers is that they're about to be destroyed because the church is in one spirit, standing firm, 
contending like they are one person for the gospel, and they have no fear. Now, opposed in this context is not everybody who's not a Christian. It is those who are literally attacking Jesus and his church and trying actively to destroy it. And it's not just supposed to say, you're going to die. It's supposed to be like, you're going to die if you don't change. But it's supposed to be a sign and a terrifying one that the church of Jesus Christ is unified, standing firm, fighting as one man together, and completely unafraid of those who oppose it. Is that, is that what we are? And is it really true we can't be that? Or could we with some humility and faith and courage and willingness to compromise within the non-fundamentals and come together faithfully as much as possible and to really make sacrifices and decide that we want this group of people to be great in the earth, assigned to all people? Right? So it gives our spiritual fathers and mothers all the way to our greater brother and perfect humanity, Jesus, and the Father who created the salvation. The most comfort is the same thing that is assigned to Christ's opposers, which is that we would stand firm in one spirit, contend as one man for the gospel or one soldier for the gospel, and for, to, for us to do for, for faith of the gospel and unafraid in doing so. Now, there's three um, sort of critical conclusions that I want everybody who's ever been to High Point Church to carry with them into the world about the local church. Okay? The first is that the church is accessible only in the, in the local church. Okay? Sometimes you say, yes, I'm a Christian. I belong to Jesus. And I know that puts me in this universal thing called the church, which is all, through all time and space, what the old church used to call the communion of the saints. All the dead who have gone before me, all who will come after me, like it says in Hebrews 11, there's a great cloud of witnesses of which I am a part. I understand that. I'm part of the great metaphysical church. I just don't like church and I don't go. False. False. The church is only accessible in the local church. Like nobody goes around being like, you know, like food as a concept, I love. I just don't eat anything. <laughs> like it, it's, it's, it's good to have your conceptual abstract category straight. Is there a metaphysical universal church kind of out there? Yes, but that's like the number five. It doesn't mean anything until there are five of something. The local church is the people and their relation to each other and Christ in the gospel and by the Spirit. That is the church. To refer to the church as an abstraction, as an excuse not to participate with the thing itself, is is crazy. And yet, I just can't tell you how many Christians think that mentally works, that it's rational, that it's like, that they'll someday they'll talk to Jesus and Jesus will be like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. He'll be like, that doesn't make any sense. The idea that you thought you could be part of or believe in this like metaphysical thing that was only ever the people themselves and then you didn't participate with the people themselves means you hated my church. Every context in the New Testament which the church is referred to makes no sense if it's not referring to real humans. And, and, and even in 1 John, you'd be like, well, well, it says in that passage, like, that you hate your brother and sister, but, like, that's just, like, generally for, like, people, right? Or, no, brother and sister is a specific reference to other believers. And in the context of 1 John, it means in the local church. That is, what John is saying is, if you can't love other Christians— in the local church, these people that you didn't pick and you can't sort, right? You can't pick them, you can't sort them. They're just here. It's the democracy of location. These are the people you get. Whoever shows up, they're yours. And they're, because they're his. 
And you, if you have to love them. And if you don't love them, you don't love God. So if we go back to that first statement that says, every person has to choose whether they're going to build the church or abandon her. Notice I said, everyone who claims to be a Christian has to decide that. Because how you decide that actually demonstrates whether or not you're a Christian. It does. The Apostle John ties together, and it's interesting. You go, go back this afternoon and read the whole chapter, at least, of 1 John 4. You'll notice the first thing John says makes you not a Christian is if you deny the incarnation of Jesus the Christ, that Jesus came in the flesh. And then he says, this is how God loved us. God sent his only son to die for us as an atoning sacrifice. Do you get it? The God who is spirit became locationally flesh and gave everything for the other people God wanted to save. Do you see that? And he says, now listen, therefore you're a Christian if what? You stop living an abstract life and you become incarnate as a real human in flesh in the presence of other people and you give yourself as a sacrifice for their true good. I, you love them. And he says, when that happens, God's love is made perfect in us. We actually love people. If you realize that, you realize the cost of these, what they're doing to us, what COVID and all of our separation and then our acceleration with these did to us. It's not over, friends. Those two years changed us. We're more private, more separated, more persnickety, more interested in getting things the way we want them, more independent, more abstracted, more treating each other like objects rather than personal subjects. We're breaking down our humanity by refusing to believe Jesus. And if you start with the fundamental reality that the church is only accessible in the local church, you have a chance of being in a context, in a system that could start to rechange you back to be like Jesus, and to be like a human being, which will be the gateway out of so many things that are killing us, our children and our neighbors. Okay, I gotta keep going here, sorry. That's what I'm just saying. The local church, number two, the local church ex churches express their shared faith differently. There are no two local churches that will be the same. We share one faith, the one faith of the gospel. We contend like we're one man for the gospel. Every local church is different. Here's the two most important things I want you to take from that practically. One, every church we participate with is going to look different from us in ways that you don't like. That's why you go to this church. You understand? Every church. Every church you work with, you're going to be like, well, I don't like that. I don't like this. Especially if you're American, you're like, my coffee's not right. Everything has to be perfect for you, right? So it's one of the sicknesses of our culture, friends. Like, like you want to you practice something spiritual? Practice the discipline of humility, and everything anybody does for you is good enough. It's perfectly fine. This coffee's fine. That food is fine. This egg is fine. This everything's fine. That thing is fine. And just like, forget about the fact that somebody should have used a different tone of voice. And they, oh, they should have said this. And what does that emoji mean anyway? Just everything's fine. Just, just believe the best about people and accept what they give you and be happy about it. Right? We'll get to that when we get to contentment later in chapter 4. But listen— like, every church in Madison that we partner with, especially ones that are led by people of other ethnicities and other educations and other spiritual histories, and like, you go to India and you meet with churches there. We go to Dominican Republic, we meet with churches. They're all going to be completely different. If you go like, well, these churches aren't like ours. They're not like Pastor Nick. Like, these people all need to have MDivs, and why can't they do this? And this, and the, like, where's the, where's the music? And this, this music isn't good. These speakers stink. Like, ah! You see the problem? 
There's so much that can be different between churches than they're faithful, right? And so when we partner with churches, other churches, there's going to be stuff you're going to be like, why are they like that? Because they're like that. You know, that's what they say about us, right? I wish I could say more about this, but that, I want you to understand that. So when we partner with other churches, you'll be like, well, Nick, well, listen, if you want to be, if you want to partner with other churches that are just like us, we need to join a denomination, okay? And they all stink. That's why you go here. You're like, I go to the non-denom church. It's our denomination. You know, like, we don't have a denomination because we say we don't want to be cookie-cuttered in with everybody else and be bought into their hierarchical institutions because they go corrupt and they're very hard to reform, so we want to do this. Okay, great. Well, that means we don't belong to anybody except Jesus. So now everybody who belongs to Jesus belongs to us. And they're all different. Right? The second thing is this. When you leave High Point Church, and most of you will because this is Madison. It's a very transient city. Like every year or so, our church is 30% different people, right? You can't be like, well, I loved High Point so much. I know this isn't all of you. I understand that, okay? But you can't be like, I loved High Point so much. It was so great. We did this, we did that, we did this, we did that. And I can't find a church. Who cares? That the, the point is not to find a church like High Point. The point is to find a church that worships Jesus and is seeking in their context to follow him faithfully. If you like my sermons, you can listen to those two online. There's this thing called the internet, Right? But whole, I mean, maybe you will, because like there'll be place, like you might move to some place that's like super rural, and the pastor there might like be a carpenter on the side, and he might have been reading like his King James Bible his whole life, and like he's just flailing around on the in the pulpit on Sunday morning. You might be like, I don't have to listen to this. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You go to that church, and you put your pride aside, and you find one sentence in that sermon that is God's word to you, and if you have to use a lot of your creativity to figure out what that is all the better for your spirituality. And then you love the actual human beings that are in that room. Whatever their, their rheumatoid arthritis and their blue hair, and they're like, they're like, whatever it is. That's what the church is. And if you don't understand that, you're just coming to a show. I'm just a particular kind of latte that you like because it has a little caramel on top, and you're like destroying your soul, and you're not coming to the Jesus who wants to love so many people and love you in a way you might not be prepared for yet. Okay, I'm sorry. I just got to keep going here. There's so much more to say about it. The second is the church has, to, has its own stewardship. Okay, so Jesus— Okay, I'm not going to be able to nuance this like I would like to. Jesus isn't going to tell us what to do. Okay? I know for some of you that come from more charismatic backgrounds— you don't like that sentence, okay? And I understand that, and, I, and to a certain extent, I know why. Jeez, but Jesus isn't going to literally tell us what to do. Okay, guys, listen, your budget's going to be 2.4 million next year. Now, 42% of that, you're going to— Like, Jesus isn't going to do that, okay? Now, we may pray and ask for God's leading and try to read the providences around us and get a spiritual sense together that God wants us to move, like, sort of in that direction, okay? And that, I think, God does do in churches. And sometimes God will use certain gifts to, like, be like, do this thing right here, okay? Sometimes that happens pretty rare in my experience, where I think it's like really the Lord speaking, okay? Most of the time, we're supposed to be grown-up stewards who, who stand up and do the thing he told us to do. I was talking about this with my brother who's in town, and we were talking about just like people doing jobs and how hard it is to like hire anybody that's any good, okay? And the issue with this is like everybody's so pissy and wants so much, and nobody's a good steward, Nobody's like Joseph where you can like put something in their hands and you never have to think about it again as long as that person is there, right? So it says about Potiphar, he's like, as long as Joseph's charge, he didn't, he didn't think about anything that was under Joseph's care. I mean, how many of us are like that at the workplace? 
We're like, whatever we're in charge of, is, whatever's our responsibility, our boss never has to think about it. Like, it would be a huge personal dishonor to us if our boss had to think about something that we were in charge of. What we want is him never to have to think about it, or her, and that we take care of things so outside of our responsibility that that person would have had to think about it, they don't, because we took care of it. Because we're a grown-up, we make decisions, we take responsibility, we know it has to get done, we know our place in the organization. You wonder why you don't get a promotion? If you haven't got a promotion, you're a bad steward. Or look for somebody who knows what a steward is and is willing to promote them in another job. We are supposed to be Christ's stewards. We have to decide, you and me, have to decide what we're going to do with our money, what we're going to do with our building, what churches we're going to support, what missionary things we're going to do, how we're going to do evangelism, how we're going to raise our kids, what we're going to do for this. We have to decide that together. Understand? Okay, now, take out your little trifold. This part is the part where I go, okay, this is who we are as High Point Church. What are we together in this body, in this situation, and what we're doing right now in this church? Now, you might be like, Nick, this is boring. Yes, it is if you have a bad attitude, but there are some things you have to repeat until you master, right? So there's some things I can just make you familiar with and move on, and you're like, oh, that tickles me, and I like that. But sometimes you have to do something until you have it mastered so that it comes up in your mind whenever you need it. You understand? And so sometimes you have to do that, right? And then lastly is, this is going to be a summary. We're going to come back to some of this stuff over the next eight weeks. So I'm going to, I'm just going to bounce through this. Give it to you, because probably the literacy rate in this room is like hovering somewhere around 100%. Okay? You're going to read this and keep it. Okay? If you don't understand it, you should sign up for Explore, because we go over some of this in that class. Okay? Now, the way I lead us structurally and with the Elder Board is I focus on three levels of structure or organizationally in this church as an institution. The body of Christ is also an institution. Institutions are good. There's a podcast on that if you want to find out why, okay? The first level is right here under what's called our core values, and it's essentially like our mission, our core values. Jesus commissioned us to make disciples. So the way we say that was do it through gospel, connection, growth, and service, right? And— that's not enough. You have to say kind of like what you're valuing. So you know like kind of your ethos, the flavor, the ethic by which you do it. And those fundamental values that we're all supposed to have in our mind all the time is we do it in a way that is gospel-centered. It is, has integrity in relationship to the written scriptures of the Bible. It is a formational community. That is, we're in community with one another and we are moving in spiritual growth towards Christ that influence both in each other's lives and outside of here always costs sacrifice. People who do what they didn't have to do are the people people listen to and follow. And context or contextualization. We have to meet people where they're at, not where they wish we wish they were. So, so like Devin might want to lead a class on like reading through Philippians in Greek and memorizing it in Koine Greek, right? I would love to lead that too. But like, nobody's going to come to that class because nobody's—that's not where anybody's at. You understand? We have to be, where are people at? What questions are they asking? How do we interact with those questions and lead them to where Jesus wants to take them? Do you understand? Relevance is too kitschy a word, but it, it means something like that, frankly. Okay, the, and so one of the, so the first question to ask is, is, for everybody in this room, what is your relationship to level one? That's what it says right here, okay? Now, some of you are kind of like, I don't, I'm new, Nick. Okay, listen, totally fine. 
If you don't consider yourself part of the family, you don't have to know how the family works yet. It's fine. But if you think that you're part of Jesus, and therefore you access the local church through this church, you know that all local churches are different. You, know how, you need to know how to be part of this one. I'm telling you. And the way you're related to this is that we pursue making disciples according to our mission and ministry models. Our core values can be understood by every member and are to unify all levels of High Point Church leadership across all of its events and ministries. So you need to know these things because anything you do in the church should be according to the mission, should be social, learning, and service-oriented, and it should be according to these five fundamental principles of how to be Christian together. Every one of us should be pursuing a level of mastery with this level. Okay. The second thing is strategic pursuits. Now, for the most part, these are the things that the leaders have to have on their mind all the time. Strategically, over time, we need to make sure that these things which help create the context of flourishing and keep corruption from entering in or from us, like, lagging in what Jesus called us to do, our elders, our staff team, our pastors have to focus on these things. Okay, and the, these things, if you—whoops—if you summarize them as much as— I've been able to come down to these three things. Evangelism or evangelical, that is, oriented towards the gospel, sharing that gospel, and inviting people to believe that gospel. It, man, it's hard to keep doing that when people don't want to hear it. But it's so fundamental to our character and our purpose that we have to keep coming back to how do we do it? How do we do it naturally and lovingly in a way that's caring and not incredibly awkward, but that we do it with real courage, right? We have to keep coming back to that. It's, it's very, very, very important. The second is leadership development. If you read the Bible, you will find— that the, the people of God do about as well as their leaders. And I, I'd like to say more about this, but 10 years ago, um, some of the boomer guys who were like entering their 60s said that they were so encouraged about the men and women who were coming into leading the church who were in their 20s, and that the church in America had an incredibly bright future. Numerically, it wasn't growing really quick yet, but if you looked at who was going to be leading it, it, it looked great. Something has broken that trend. Our best, some of, uh, there are very few among our best and our brightest young people, our most godly and Christ-passionate young people, where they're entering into vocations of ministry or leadership in the church. Now, there's lots of theories about that. If you want to know my theory, I think my theory is, it's funny how it correlates almost exactly with phones in kids' pockets. I think there's very little as abstract in abnegating of the world than to taking on the sacrifice for the person you can't touch, which is God, and to give up all earthly things to the extent necessary to serve that God who has risen from the dead. We're just not creating humans like that anymore. Everything's visceral. Everything's immediate. Everything's right now. Everything's for me. But you can't be a pastor like that. You can't go into ministry. You can't serve Jesus like on that kind of a level. You can't die. You can't put aside your ego. You can't do any of those things. And why would you? Something's happening to us, and it's taking away our capacity to find among us people who are willing to lay down whatever it takes to build the church of Jesus Christ as their vocation, no matter what it costs, no matter whether or not everybody else can have cars with leather seats and go on nice vacations, and even if you never get to go on one, no matter how, how your kids feel like they're poor in a church that's rich or any of those kinds of things, finding those people has gone wrong somehow. And someone, somewhere, some church, somebody of Christ is going to have to turn something around and to find young people and retiring people and people that, are, that decide to do something different than their job or to be bivocational or to say, I want to lead the flock of Jesus Christ for whom he poured out his very blood. Here in Jordan, 
anywhere that will have me. I was rejected by like 300 churches before one idiotic church let me come there as a staff member. Something's got to give with this. And so our leaders have to focus on that, leadership development, and then pursuit of unity. I, I call this breaking down the walls of hostility to make it more biblical, and unity can mean so many things. But unity doesn't just happen. People are petty, and they're shallow, and they're immature, and so they get in fights with each other, and they don't apologize. And the work of unity is really hard, and it's gotten so much worse around us in the last few years. And while some of our cultural stuff has been coming apart, we've been building some really beautiful relationships with other churches and other believers in other places in the world and of other ethnicities and other spiritual traditions that believe in Jesus and the scriptures. And we're going to do more of it. And then lastly and quickly, um, expansion. We want to be part of something bigger. You, we, have to, we have to go from Jesus down to the local church but then realize that to be part of the universal church means to be part of something bigger in other local churches with other concrete people. That's how we participate in the big thing that's the universal church. It's by being part of something bigger among real people. Whether that's in missionary endeavors, whether that's in planting churches, whether that's in helping pastors not quit who are tired and broken, whether it's training young people as a teaching church so that people can do some of this work, whether it's whatever it is. Right? We— and here's what that means. I believe that if the church is healthy, that it will produce a kind of surplus of something. Money, will, sacrifice, service, willingness, capacity to do all kinds of things. And what we need to wonder and think about is, what, what did God give us surplus for? And it's just, it's just not for us to eat our seed corn. It's for us— it, our surplus is to be seed and salve. It's to plant new things and to heal things that are broken. That's why we have more than we need. And so as a church, one of my, my fundamental goals and what we have been doing for years, we've spent millions of dollars in the last 10 years sending it outside of here. We could have, re have really nice carpet right now, awesome coffee. Our kids think it could be all painted and themed and like I could wear nicer shoes and like we could have like all, oh, whatever, whatever you think the fixings are, we could have them. And we don't because we have spent millions of dollars building up other churches, training other leaders, having conferences that are like mobile seminaries for pastors all over India, building up communities in the DR so that their kids don't die of dysentery but instead go to college in one generation. I took a check for $15,000 over to a church. This, this guy had spent 12 years raising $80,000. We gave him $15,000 in one day to move closer to buying his building and to be, be able to do the programs in his neighborhood that he's already doing and to branch out into other things. But it's going to cost $300,000 just to buy his building. And I don't think we're done helping this brother, right? Uh, and, there are, and there is literally billions of dollars of human capital, just stuff you know how to do. Not your money, but just stuff you know how to do in this church, just waiting to be unleashed for God's purposes in your workplace, but also helping other churches and other Christians, and doing ministries with people in ways that will fundamentally change their lives. And they will receive it as God's love is made perfect in us. As you give it, exchange that with a real human being in a real situation, because you are being the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and so God's love is being made perfect in us. Let's pray. God, 
I pray that you take the things I've said, the things we've written, the stuff that we're doing, and that you would help us to be more like Christ, not because we're driven to it by fear, but because your perfect love is driving out fear, that we want to be complete and mature. We want to be one. We want to experience the healing and the blessing. We want to be part of the work that you're doing. We want, like the Apostle Paul said, it was granted to you to suffer in the, doing the work of the gospel. We want to be people that are like unwilling soldiers that have to do certain things for the good of others, and we're willing to do it without fear, with real courage, as one person standing firm in one spirit for the faith of the gospel, for the good of all people. And if no other church in Madison is willing to do it, which is not true, but even if we were the only one, we would do it, and we would do it gladly, and we would do it under the shame put on us by anyone around us. And we would do it because we know that by standing and contending together, we give a sign to those who oppose you that they need. And we comfort our spiritual mother and fathers all the way to you, our greater father, in that perseverance. We pray in Jesus' name.